0: Now, i got a really difficult task here today. You're giving the longest chapter in the book of Acts, or at least the longest sermon in the book of Acts, to a long-winded person. And uh, you people want to get out here today. I know that. And the Sunday school teachers, uh, well, you know about that. But anyway, and I told you last week, if I had to term a sermon, which I never do, I never name a sermon, but if this one I had to name, I'd say the words of a waiter. The words of a waiter. Here you have this man, Stephen, who has been called as a sort of a deacon in chapter 6, and he continues to tell us that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And I would venture to say, and I would go out on a limb, not really a limb, I'd go out and say that this book is a picture, a study, a, 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 a conversation. We're reminded of the person and work of the Holy Spirit as we move through the book of Acts. He's, not who, not what, well, who, yes. Not what, it's he and a who. It's a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. We sometimes in the church think of him as some sort of Casper the Ghost. That's not the right way to think of the Holy Spirit. We believe in one God in three persons. I almost put two fingers up there. That daylight savings got me, man. (laughs) One God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So we believe in the Holy Spirit. He's a person. And you'll see, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, and today we're going to see you can resist the Holy Spirit. And this Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. You say, well, yeah, that's right, because he was part of the early church and we're reading about him in the Bible, and yeah, that happens to those Bible people. Yeah, but the Bible tells us that anyone who surrenders their life to Jesus Christ puts everything that they are into the saving work of Christ. When you trust in Christ, believe in Christ, the Bible tells you clearly that the person of the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life, and you now become the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's orthodox Christian belief. Nobody uh, would say other... Well, that's not true. But anyway, uh, that's what it is. He comes into your life. And so what I'm saying is the Holy Spirit is still working and still moving in people's life and in this world. And this is a study in the continuation of the Gospels, that's what Acts is. We see in Luke who wrote this, Acts, that he's writing volume two. Luke volume two. That's the book of Acts. But what's really fascinating is that story's still being told. And in a just a peewee little way, right here is a picture, is a history, is a descendant. It's, it's the lineage. You are the lineage of that. You're part of the church. You're continuing the story of God's work through the Holy Spirit in the world today. That's what you are. We are, in a sense. And so we see Stephen, who was faithful in just little things. He was a deacon. He served and waited tables for the Hellenistic Greek widows that threatened to... Divide the church. That was the problem in chapter six. And they, the apostles raised up or called out some men who were always already doing ministry. They were serving. They were laying down their lives for others. And they didn't complain. They didn't say, Oh, you picked me for the table waiting ministry. Come on. You know, I'm better than that. No, they didn't say any of that. They said, Praise the Lord. That's what I'll do because you've called me for that Lord and I'm gonna do it to the best of my ability and I'm gonna do it as unto you and I'm gonna worship you with my service. And the Lord looked upon Stephen and said, Whoo, wow, now there's a guy. And so the next view you have of Stephen is him full of faith and power, doing great wonders and signs, that's in chapter six. And he is speaking and talking the gospel And guess what happens? He's just living his life, full of the Spirit, gently bold, and all of a sudden, he's sitting in front of the Supreme Court of Israel. 70 plus 1, 71 men who would come and question him and were upset. This is the same council in which Jesus was paraded in front of, a few months before, and ultimately crucified the same people. And here's where Stephen finds himself, in front of this council. And we're going to read and think about Stephen's address to the ruling council of Israel. Now, one other thing before we begin. Remember, in the first chapter of Acts, we're given the outline sort of of what Acts is going to be that you're going to, verse 1, receive power when the Holy Spirit, there he is again, not there's what again, it's who, he, it's a person. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, followers of Christ, my followers, because it's Christ saying it. Watch this. And you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and from that moment on in chapter 1, till the moment we're seeing here in chapter 7, we've been seeing the men and women of the early church sharing the gospel of Christ and living it out in Jerusalem. And now we're going to shift gears because Jesus told us that they were commanded to go to Jerusalem, then to Judea, which is a bigger part, going out farther, and then Samaria farther, and then to all the ends of the earth. And that's the outline of Acts. And today you're going to see the shift from Jerusalem to farther out. Everybody with me? And he takes it through a, or he uh, develops this through a confrontation. And that's always how the Lord moves. Or maybe I should say that's many times how the Lord moves. There can be beauty out of conflict. What happens in the American church is, there's conflict. And we say, we hate conflict. We're going to run out of here and go to a different church. And the problem with that is you're going to run into more conflict there. And then when you go to the next church, you're going to run into more conflict there and conflict and conflict and conflict. And you're never going to reach the beauty that God has for you. Here, Stephen, this man who was serving as a waiter, nothing wrong with being a waiter. My wife, Supported us. She worked three jobs as a waitress when we first moved to Hawaii. So praise the Lord for waiters or waitresses. There's nothing wrong with being a waiter, but sometimes we can think it's not that big of a deal. Well, it is a big deal to the Lord. And he did it faithfully. And then it says, he's in front of this council, end of chapter six, and they're looking steadfastly at him and they see a face of an angel. Come on, man. I just want you to see something with Stephen before we begin this journey. Stephen had settled the death question. Actually, the Lord had settled it for him. What could man do to us? Nothing. Man can't do anything to us. Because when we go uh, to sleep, that's how the New Testament calls it, when we die, We go to be in the presence of the Lord. And to be in the presence of the Lord, as Paul said, is a great thing. But I'm in conflict, Paul said. I mean, I got some more stuff to do here, so that's good. But if I die, Paul knew, not Stephen, he said, I'd be with the Lord. And Stephen had settled this question, or the Lord had settled it for him. So that when he gets to this council, I mean, come on, you're a waiter. And next thing you know, you're in the Supreme Court of Israel. But he had peace and calmness and confidence, not in himself, but in the Lord. He knew the promises that the Lord would give him what he needed to speak. Jesus told them that before he left. You're going to find yourself before councils, but don't worry. I'll give you what to say through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So he knew it, and he had peace, and he lived in the promises of God, and he'd settled the death question, or the Lord had settled it for him. What can man do to us when we know we're going to go be with the Lord? One mark of the Christian, I think, is a calmness, a peace, a joy. When we're faced with death for ourselves here, watch this. Then the high priest said, are these things? So the high priest, here you go. You're a waiter. You start doing some things and moving in the operation of the gifts and you're, you're, you're healing and teaching and loving. And all of a sudden you find yourself in the Supreme court and the high priest is questioning you. That's a little could be unnerving for some. But who was the high priest? Remember, in the book of John, we're told that Jesus, a couple months before, was taken to the high priest Annas. That's the only place in the Gospels where we see on the night in which he was betrayed and tried, that he went to Annas. Annas wasn't the high priest at the time. He was the father-in-law of a high priest named Caiaphas. Ever heard of Caiaphas? In Israel, if you go with us, we can go to one of the supposed places of Caiaphas' house, and it has tunnels in the bottom of tunnels, caves in the basement like prison cells. Very interesting. But nevertheless, this Caiaphas who had put Jesus on trial is probably the one who's speaking here. Here's why, because extra-biblical history says he's still in power at the time of Acts 7. So here he is in front of the high priest, the same one Jesus faced. And he said, are these things so? What things? Look back into chapter 6. It's uh, this. He was wise and the Spirit spoke, verse 10. They induced men. They, they got uh, false witnesses to talk to about him. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, seized him and brought him to council. They also set up false witnesses. And they said this. This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words, against this holy place in the law. Now, these people aren't stupid. They know the Old Testament law. And if you turn back to the Old Testament law, in the law, it says that if you blaspheme God, guess what happens? Capital punishment. And the way in which they did capital punishment, remember, is that they threw rocks or big heavy stones. And remember, watch this, remember who had to cast the stone the one who was the witness to the uh, incident or the blasphemy. You get it? That's important for this story. So they are no dummies, and they say, uh, hey, are these things so? Uh, And what he's talking about is that he's speaking blasphemy. Against what or who? The holy place. That's the temple. Remember in the Old Testament, there was a temple where the glory of the Lord resided. Just remember this, the temple and all the things that were happening in the temple in the Old Testament were pointing to Jesus. Just think about it. Sacrifices. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. High priests and priests, right? Jesus is our great high priest. So this temple is pointing to Jesus. So they're saying, well, wait a minute, you're blaspheming the holy place, and that law. Remember the law? The law is when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he wrote it out on, you know, chisels and the finger of God and blah, 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 on tablets. Remember this? Okay, you know that. And it's he also bring this up because remember Jesus himself said this, I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days I'll bring it back or rebuild it. And they were freaked out when Jesus said it. Remember this? They were very concerned. Why? Because they thought Jesus was talking about the temple. Jesus himself, in the same time, and actually the chapter that we read, is speaking to this, says, no, 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 no. You're getting it wrong. I'm talking about my body. But they didn't really listen. But this infuriated them when they're dealing with Jesus. Watch. It's no... It, uh, uh, coincidence that they're bringing this charge again. They're no dummies. They're trying to get a capital murder conviction. Now, one other thing, and then I'll go on. (laughs) You're like, man, there's a lot of rabbit trails here today. Remember, Rome dominated the ancient world. And there's some indication here that Rome may have stripped Israel from their capital death execution sentences that they could carry them out. But when some commentators say it came to things that pertain just to the Israelis or to the Hebrews or to the Jews, they would allow it to go through. So I just want you to put that back in your head because many of you know it. So they said, are these things so? What things? You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, you're blaspheming against God and the temple. Try to get a capital murder charge or capital uh, execution, right? And they agree that Jesus said that he would destroy this place and he would change the customs, the laws, which Moses delivered. Okay, those are the charges. And he says, Hey, is this true, Stephen? Right there in front of 71 people pointing fingers. And Stephen now, boy, this is going to be tough for me. Stephen now gives the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And what Stephen is doing is he's trying to tell them that they have actually broken and not followed the very laws and customs that they so vehemently defend and say that they are defending and following. You get me? In other words, watch. Stephen, as we go through this, is very respectful. Watch. But he's pointing out the hypocrisy. Watch. You ever been fed up with religion? He's pointing out the hypocrisy of their religion. That's what's happening through this entire place. Watch just one time, just one time. Ritual, one writer says, takes the place of the enjoyment of reality. That's what's happening to Jewish people back here in this time in Acts chapter 7. But oh, by the way, folks, it can happen anywhere. We can be so into ritual that we forget the reality of the living Christ. Oh, we do it this way all the time. That's the way we're going to keep doing it. That's what we do when we come to church. We kneel, we bow, we put money in the thing, we help you. And, and it becomes external. And as we've seen, external religion, outward religion, religion is can become bitter and angry and divisive, and dare I say it from here, even murderous. You say, well, I don't know if I've seen murderous. Yeah, but you hear, see of people in the church hating each other. And Jesus said that's murder. So watch the external things that you do as opposed to what's happening on the inside, the reality of Christ. Ray Steadman says it so well. The law was like a picture. Christ is the reality. And I love his analogy, I always tell it to you, or I love his picture of what that's like. If my family goes away for a trip, and I have pictures out, and I'm kissing the pictures while they're gone, and I'm talking to the pictures, and I'm hugging the picture in the picture frame, well, that's okay, a little weird, but okay. But when my wife comes back with the kids, it's weird and strange and not right if I continue to kiss the picture and the frame. Because the reality is sitting right there. And I'm still on to the picture. And that's what the law was like for the Jews. So here's what happens. He goes right back to the father of the Jewish religion to prove the point that they're being hypocrites. He's not saying it. He's actually being very respectful. He's not saying it outright. I mean, in a, in a way that would, you know, be disrespectful. He's being respectful. Watch this. He gives an amazing argument to these legal people. Man, lawyers, you just can't trust them. That's a joke. I'm a lawyer, okay? So here he is, and he says, brothers and fathers, listen, listen up here. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Now watch. This this chapter takes some thinking. When did he appear to Abraham? Abraham. He appeared to Abraham, listen to me, before the law was created or given and before the temple was given and before circumcision was around as a sign of the covenant between God and the Israel people or the Jewish people. You get that? And that's the point he's making. They don't know it, but that's the point. Abraham, your father, he doesn't say it, but that's what he means, was in Mesopotamia. He wasn't even in Israel. You folks revere the land and the buildings and the legal stuff or the law and all this stuff. But the father of your whole thing here, Stephen's pointing out, didn't even come from Israel. And he was called out of this land. And you know the story when God said, get out of your country, get away from your relatives, come to a land that I'm going to show you. Watch, a calling out, why? Was Abraham some great, Awesome dude. Actually, no. He was just like you and I. And Joshua, it tells us that Abraham came from a pagan family that worshiped idols. What does that tell you? God's grace. This is all about God's grace. And that's what Stephen is telling these people. You're missing it. You're kissing the picture. When the reality is Christ and you're missing it, even in your own thing that has been happening, God was graceful. He called them out of the land of Chaldeans and they went and they dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, I underlined that he moved to the land, which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance, even in it, not even enough to set his foot on. Watch, but you know this, but when Even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. You know that the Lord promised Abraham a lot of descendants. And Abraham's sitting there scratching his head as he's moving his whole, you know, sort of caravan out of, you know, way over there on the map to way over here on the map. And he had, there's no reason other than God's grace before the law, and God makes a promise to Abraham. Your descendants are going to be so many, you won't be able to even look out in the stars and, uh, you know, beat that. You're going to have more than that. Sand, whatever. You're, you're, you're going to have so many descendants. And Abraham must be scratching his head and going, are you kidding me? I mean, I'm getting close to 100 here, man. And my wife and I, and we, Nothing. Is this really true? And God, in his grace, you know the story, gives him uh, uh, descendants. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. Can you imagine? Hey, hey, Abraham, I want you to come into the land of promise, go over there, and oh, by the way, when you get there, I'm going to send you into a pagan land, Egypt, and you're gonna live there. You and your folks are gonna live there. You know, you'll die there, but... You're going to live there for 400 plus years. How's that sound? And God was doing a mighty work there because he was growing the people of Israel. Why are we talking about Israel? Because Israel was called to be a conveyor. Listen to me, a conveyor of God's love to the world, a light unto the world, not a container of God's love. It's not some sort of um, discriminatory thing that we're talking about here. No, God picked this little country over on the Mediterranean Sea. I always get in trouble. They email me after this. I always mess the state up. If it's either Rhode Island or Vermont or something like that, New Hampshire, peewee little state, I'll get the email right after church. Gabe, he's got it for me. He's got it queued up right now. (laughs) He tells me. Which one? But anyway, uh, what is it? Okay, Rhode Island. There we go. It's little. Why would God choose to reveal himself through a little peewee little place over in the Mediterranean Sea? Grace. He picks. He chooses. And it's not based on our merit. It's because he's so graceful and loving. All right, so... Then over there in verse 8, they give him the covenant of circumcision. Again, that's a sign between God and the Jews that he was their chosen people. Chosen in what way? To convey God's love to a dying and hurting world. And so uh, Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the uh, eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And remember, Jacob was also called Israel And Jacob had 12 kids, basically. And one of them, uh, of course, was Joshua. Do you remember this? Joshua. And that goes to the next story Joshua. Who's Joshua? Joshua has this dream. Maybe you've seen it over in the Dottie Osmond play. Oh, come on, folks. He ran on uh, Broadway for years and years and years. And what's that? Oh, Joseph. What'd I say? What'd I say? Oh yeah, Joseph, there we go. Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. And he ran, Donnie Osmond did this for years. Uh, technicolor, dream coat, whatever it's called. Joseph has this coat, he has these dreams. And these dreams are basically, he's gonna rule over his brothers and his brothers hate him. And they knock him into a well to try to kill him. Everybody with me? Everybody with me? You gotta stay awake for this because this has a powerful ending and he knocks him into a well. Not Joshua, Joseph. (laughs) And you got Joseph there, and he's in a well, and uh, some people come by, and the Midianites grab him and take him. They get sold, and they take him down to Egypt, and oh, woe is me, woe is me, everybody would say. But eventually, Joseph becomes second in charge in Egypt. In Egypt, and God you know, uh, sends his family down there because a famine comes, and I want you to see this. This is important for the story because at the end, this is the punchline. I'm going to give you the punchline now. When they get to see Joseph, his family, they don't recognize him. Do you remember this? And Joseph plays a, a trick on them. Hey, you know what? I want to see younger brother and dad. Younger brother and dad. I don't know about that. They say, dad, so... Dad would be sad to give up younger brother. But anyway, the brothers go back up, gather up the family, and come back again. And what does Joseph do at that time? He reveals himself, and they cry, and they love, and they, oh, I can't believe we did this. This was such a dastardly thing to do do to you. And, and, And Joseph said, hey, what you meant for evil, God turns around for good. You know the story. And here's the point of this story as we read down through here, watch this in verse 17 or 13. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people. And they went down to Egypt and he died and they were carried back, etc. Now watch. Then, now, Stephen puts it into overdrive, man. If you were living at this time, and you were a part of the council, and you were a follower of the law, you revered Abraham. You loved Joseph, but Moses. Oh, Moses. Moses was a big deal to the Israelites. Why? What did Moses do? Well, he got the law from God, and he led them through the wilderness. Everybody just hang on here for a minute. And so he does, and so... uh, As the time of the promise drew near, verse 17, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew, multiplied, till another king arose who didn't know Joseph. And he dealt treacherously with him. And uh, then you have uh, babies being exposed so they might not live. And at this time, Moses is born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. Watch this. But he was involved with Pharaoh's family. The Egyptian families, when Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up uh, as her own son, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds, which time out is funny to me, because in Exodus, when God calls him, guess what Moses says? I don't know how to speak. So the Bible is so real, man. What do you mean you don't know how to speak? It says that you were excellent in words and deeds. I need a helper to speak for us. Okay, we'll give you your older brother. Remember that? OK, so that's what's happening. Now you've got to think about this. Moses' life can be separated into three 40-year periods. The first 40-year periods, he sort of grows up in privilege, in the Egyptian house. But something happens. What happens? He goes out. You know this. When he was 40 years old, he wanted to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, verse 23. And he saw one suffering and he defended. That's important for the story. He was the defender. This guy was getting mistreated and he avenged those who were oppressed and struck down the Egyptian for he supposed that his brothers would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they didn't understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting trial to reconcile them. And they said, Hey, hey, brothers, what are you doing? Or he says that. And they go, hey. But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? You want to kill me? So you, as you did the Egyptian yesterday, oh boy, they didn't get it. They didn't recognize it. They didn't see that Moses was their deliverer the first time. So what did God do? He put him out in the wilderness in the back of a desert and he took out all of the self-life of Moses. That was the second 40 year period. Then what happened in the third 40 year period? He led, he was ready to lead. You get it? So when you read this, you go, wow, okay. When 40 years, look at this, 30, verse 30, had passed, there was this thing where the angel of the Lord comes to him in a burning bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Wow, okay. So I'm not totally going to be put away. Watch, the Lord's going to use Moses, he says. Oh, he's going to use me. He comes to me in a burning bush. And he goes and he says, uh, or listens to the Lord. And the Lord says, I'm the God of your fathers. Look down there in verse 31 and 32, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob and Moses trembled and dared not look. And then the Lord said, take your sandals off your feet. Very famous story, right? For the place where you stand is holy ground. Having surely seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning. Listen, listen, listen. I want you to see something. God sees and hears their pain. God sees and hears the people of God's pain. He's not a detached God. He sees and he hears. That's important. I've heard their groaning, have come down to deliver them, and now uh, come, I will send you to Egypt. So now on a second time or uh, that uh, Moses comes... This whom Moses rejected, who made your ruler, etc., is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angels. He brought them out after he'd shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. They rec- this is the point of this story. They recognized him in round two. Are you catching that? That's really important. So now you go and you say, well, okay, well, what happens now in 37? This is what Moses who said, uh, said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. In other words, there's one after Moses that is coming. Moses said it in Deuteronomy that you really need to pay attention to. We ultimately know that was Jesus. But anyway, he goes on and he says, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. Oh, wait a minute. Time out. We've been reading so long. I see your eyes. They're glazed over. You're tired of listening to me. But don't be tired. Because at the beginning, he said, catch it, brethren and fathers, listen. And now he's saying the fathers wouldn't obey Moses, but rejected him. The one who received the living oracles. What were the living oracles? The commandments. Here he is doing his work. Can you imagine earthquakes, lightnings, fog, smoke, having to speak with God? It's such a, whoa, I'm here. And boom, I got the tablets and I'm coming down. It's going to be such a great reunion. I can trust my brother. He's such an amazing minister. I'm going to go down there and we're going to live a happy life. Because I got the commandments, Moses must have been thinking. But they rejected and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Egypt's a picture of sin in the Bible. They turned back saying to the brother, make us gods to go before us as for this Moses He's been up there just a couple, and they're like, as for this Moses, like now they're adversarial with their leader. Can you believe it? It's so human nature. And as for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what was become of him. Where is he? What's he doing up there? Hurry it up, Moses. They start to complain and grumble. And what happens before they make, or Moses make it down? They've made a calf They've offered sacrifices to the idols, and this is important. They've rejoiced in the work of their own hands. And what were they doing? I mean, it doesn't really tell us this, but they were taking off their clothes, making these things, dancing around a golden calf and having some sort of weird pagan spiritual, not really spiritual, but you know what I mean, spiritually demonic orgy. That's what they were doing. And it had only been, a. I mean, come on, here's the guy up there. And Aaron's participating. What is Stephen saying? You revere Moses and look, he went up one day and comes down the next. And before you know it, idols everywhere. That's what Stephen's saying here. And you revere him and try to follow the law and all of that sort of thing. And look what happens to dead religion, dead religion. It has no transformation on the inside. So he goes on. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven because they were worshiping the stars. Similar today. Just read a newspaper if there is such a thing as a newspaper anymore. You have a horoscope and you worship the stars and you try to get stuff from there And instead of worshiping the Lord. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven and then he brings in the prophets. Do you understand to a Jewish person, the prophets would have been, yes, okay, well, listen to the prophets. Good. You're telling us, The prophets, okay, maybe the council was saying, okay, now he's getting somewhere. Let's talk about the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? This comes from the minor prophet Amos. And what he's saying here is, you were given sacrifices, but nothing was happening inside. You were just doing it. Oh, I got to give money again this week. I got to serve this week i got to go to church and listen to that guy because my wife wants me to, or my friend, blah, 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 blah. They were just going through the motions. That's what they're talking about here. And then a little snippet from Isaiah. You also took up the tabern- tabernacle of Molech. Oh, if you read through the history of Israel, we got really sick. They actually were putting idols inside God's temple. They were making screens where behind it they could... Uh, Uh, practice prostitution or temple worship through sex, Uh, they were, this reference here, they were actually, watch, they disintegrated spiritually to the point where they were actually offering their firstborn and child sacrifice. That's what this is a reference to. And you see, that's what happens with dead religion and when we have idols in our life, something that we hold higher in esteem than we do God. These things happen, even when we have an appearance of some sort of spirituality or religion. And then he took up this tabernacle of Molech and this star of the god Remphan, images which you made to worship, watch this, and this was the reason God took Babylon grabbed the people of Israel or Jerusalem and took them up into exile. It was because of idolatry. God hates idolatry. You know why he hates it? Because he knows what we worship is who we become. And he says it in the Psalms and it's just a principle. Whatever you worship, that's what you become. If you worship money, you're going to become what? Greedy. I'm talking about worshiping money. There's nothing wrong with having money, apparently, because it's a gift in the church of giving. But if you worship it, you become like what money does. It's dangerous. It's intoxicating. It can lead to slippery slopes and much sin or whatever. You worship sex? Well, you're just going to go from partner to partner to partner, and you're never going to have any real connection, and you're going to distort the gospel. Because the gospel is two people becoming one, man and woman, that become one and shout to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. So if you worship sex, and you just go from there to there to there, is sex a vital part of marriage? Of course. But if you worship it, watch. It'll wreck you and on. We could go on with any idol. Okay, watch. And our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. As he appointed, instructed Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Moses was to make it perfectly like God said. They received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land, not Joseph. That's a joke. Not very funny possessed by the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Now watch. They loved the tabernacle which was in the wilderness that went everywhere they went. They loved it. The tent of meeting, they loved that thing. You could see it. You could touch it. You could be there, but not really, because only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, just one person. But then when it became a permanent structure in Israel, they loved that. And what resided, the Bible tells us, in the holy of holies in the tabernacle and in the temple, the presence of God, the uh, the kabod, the substance of God in the holy of holies. But watch this. God says in verse 49, or excuse me, 48, however, the most high doesn't dwell in temples. You're sitting here and you go, will you please just read so I can go on? But to a Jewish mind who read, however, the the Most High does not dwell in temples, they would have almost fallen down here. This is shocking. Wait a minute. Temples, it's where the glory of the Lord is. What are you talking about? Temple, temple, it's it's, it's our place where we go. It's the center of everything we are and who we are. What do you mean God doesn't reside in that temple? Of course he resides in that temple. And here he quotes... From Isaiah 7, hey, wait a minute. God's always said, always, God's always said that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. You can't contain me in one place. That's what God's saying. The temple was a picture of the coming reality of Jesus Christ. And so... God. In other words, Stephen is saying to these guys, you, you guys think he's just contained to a, a, a place? He's bigger than that. He's way bigger than that. And he says, what house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? In other words, you can't build a house big enough for me, the Lord says. Has my hand not made all these things? Whew. I got through it. And now he brings it to a head. He does this. If you study this sermon, and I, I'll get off of it, and I know. You're like, come on, move on. If you study this sermon, it's genius. It's genius. He, just like a great orator would do, he's proving his point, and they don't even understand that he's doing it until the end. And they're like, oh, wait a second. Everything you've said here, Stephen, I guess what you're trying to tell us is we've been hypocrites in living this way because we don't have the reality of the living God in our lives. What we have is tradition and rituals and uh, things that we do just because we do them and we just sort of go through the motion. Isn't that what you're saying, Stephen? And, you know, he would have said yes, but he says more than that. And here it comes. Now remember, he's a waiter. Now remember, he hasn't had a lot of time to train in oratory. Now remember, I don't know that he was brought up in a legal world or a a debate club or anything like that. He was a waiter. Nothing wrong with waiters. Supported me. So praise the Lord. If you're a waiter, I'm not saying anything to you about that. But my point is, he was, watch, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and what's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit to give you boldness. That's one thing you see time and time again in the book of Acts as he fills you afresh. Watch this. The other thing is, he brings to remembrance the things that you ought to say when you get into places where you don't know what to say. He gives and delivers wisdom, not just facts, there are a lot of people who know the facts and have zero wisdom. This is something from the Lord. It's supernatural. This wisdom to stand up boldly in front of a council to seek out and to understand that God's glory comes first and his name should be defended. And that there are people, watch this, there might be some sitting in here today who don't know or aren't trusting in Christ. And they have an end that, I guess it's not an end. They have a life of forever in hell. And then for those who trust in Christ, we have a life together with God for eternity. You get it? And so here, I want you to see one thing before we go on. God was pursuing the council. Are you kidding me? Of all the people or sets of people in this story, my eyes aren't on the council. In fact, in my humanness, I sort of get upset. You're doing what to a brother? You're doing what for no reason? You're trumping up the charges? You're bringing in professional liars? I start to get a little bit angry. Similar to when I read the Gospels about Jesus who laid his life down willingly. I get upset the Lord laid his life down willingly. Why? Because the power of the Spirit was upon him and Stephen. So the Lord is pursuing the council. This is at least two or three or four times that the whole council has heard about Jesus. And he says this you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears now at first glance you might think something like this man he's being rude but i don't think so you know what i think he's doing you see in the old testament in exodus 32:9 the fathers before them were called stiff-necked and in several places in the old testament for those who were being Stubborn, the fathers before them, like Jeremiah nine twenty six, Deuteronomy 10, 16, he called these people uncircumcised in heart. Now watch, just listen to the logic. These people in the council knew the Bible like you wouldn't believe. They had it memorized. And when he says, you stiff-necked, I know it's not a nice thing to say. And when he says, you uncircumcised in heart, I know it's not a nice thing to say, and that's part of it. But the other part of that is he's saying, you're just like the fathers before who didn't recognize the first time. That's important. And they know it. They're like, wait a minute. You're equating us with people who, when they come down the mountain, would give ourselves over to a spiritual pagan orgy? That's what you're saying here, Stephen? And he's saying, you know what? You're stiff-necked and uncircumcised, just like the fathers. You wouldn't listen to the prophets. You wouldn't listen. uh, You didn't understand the purpose of the law. You didn't receive. Listen, listen. You didn't receive the grace of God like Abraham. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't pay attention. You always resist the Holy Spirit. That's what he's, he's saying. The Holy Spirit was in work, in operation. And you're resisting the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did. So do you. You catching it? He's saying, watch. Here's what he's saying. I just laid out, Stephen said, the hypocrisy of the fathers. He's saying, you religious people are playing the part. You have a mask on. You're being hypocrites. There's no reality of the living living Lord in your life. And we keep coming to you, and we keep sharing the gospel, and you're ignoring that's what Stephen's saying. Or you're, you're not listening. You're stiff-necked and you're uncircumcised. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They did. They persecuted them all. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Zechariah was in the temple. Uh, Jeremiah was killed. And you could go on and on. He was stoned. Uh, the, they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom now you have become. Here it comes. Here it is the final straw. You have now become, because of your hypocrisy, because of your outward religion, you have become the betrayers and the murderers. Uh Uh-oh. It's over. Who have received the law by the direction of angels. Apparently when he was up on the Mount of Sinai, God utilized angels some way to transfer the law but you haven't kept it either. He doesn't say either, but you haven't kept it. You don't get it. You're holding the picture. You're kissing it, you're hugging it, you're celebrating it. You're fine if you just don't have to have any inward transformation. If you can check off the uh, the list, everything that you're doing for religion and you're missing the reality of the living Lord. Keep saying it over and over again. And when they heard these things, watch this, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Folks, these are dignitaries, supposedly. These are cultured people, the elite of Israel. And they gnash at their teeth. They're gnashing their teeth. By the way, what did Jesus say would be part of living in hell? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're just giving out what's really inside of them, and that's no relationship with the Lord, certain death separated from God. And that's not fun. That's sad. They gnashed at him with their teeth. Watch this. Here it comes again. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, you ask how could Stephen do any of this? Here's the answer. He was full of the Holy Spirit Here's the other thing. He set his mind on heavenly things. He gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. Just indulge me for six more minutes. You're like, oh, great. The light at the end of the tunnel. Look in verse 2. Stephen begins with the glory of God. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. And then flip back to what we're reading now. Stephen ends with the glory of God. He's after God's glory. He's defending God's glory. He being full of the Holy Spirit, how? Because he asked for a filling. The Holy Spirit indwelled him, but now he's being filled with the Holy Spirit for ministry and life. And this life has taken him to a death chamber. And he's looking up and he's got a face of an angel because the Lord for him has solved death. If he dies, great, I'm with the Lord. If I don't die, wonderful, I get to preach to you and be in chains or whatever, but I know I've been called and it's freeing. It's freeing. The hope of heaven is freeing. So he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and says, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As Alan Redpath told us in our men's fellowship yesterday, if you start with the problems, all you'll see are the problems. But if you start looking at the one who can do anything about the problems, looking up, The heavens will open and you'll see the Son of Man. And there's peace and joy and love even in the face of death. And he says something on purpose here. I don't want you to miss it. He says, look, I I look up into heavens and I see it open and I see the Son of Man. You remember in Daniel chapter 7, there's a messianic title that all the Jews would know. And it's the Son of Man. Another way that they identified who the Messiah was is through a title called the Son of Man. It's no accident here that Stephen refers to him, who he saw, Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father. Now this is really fascinating because we know when Jesus ascended into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated Several places in the New Testament, we're told he's seated. But when Stephen looks up, as he's about ready to get uh, stones and boulders crashing into his skull, Jesus is standing. Remember, Jesus said some things like this. If you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. It's as if uh, Jesus is standing there going, Yes, come on up, Stephen. Welcome in. Well done. I mean... You good and faithful servant. Ah, oh, come on up. And that calmed him in this moment. You, you see the living reality of Christ in a person's life. You see it in this waiter. And he looks up and he says, I see the heavens and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Wow. And off we go. He says next, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. Think about it, the words of a waiter. They thought the waiter was on trial. 71 lawyers. Oh my goodness, what a terrible place to be. No, I'm kidding. John's a lawyer over there. 71 lawyers all billing at this massive rate. And here you go, and um, there they are, and they're putting him on trial, and reality, look, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Stephen put them on trial. And they cry out and stop their ears and ran at him with one accord. You know, there's one other place in the Greek that word ran at is in the Bible. Do you remember when Jesus put the demons in the swine and they ran towards the cliff and jumped off? Same word. Tell you what kind of frenzy they were in. So they run at him at one of the court and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Why? Why do they think they have a right to stone him? Because they think they're following the law, Leviticus 24, that stones people. You can stone people for blasphemy against God, when in reality they trumped up the charges and they never proved he was guilty. Does it sound familiar? like our Lord. In other words, watch, watch. As Stephen was moving and growing and being more mature, he just become more and more and more Christ-like. The life of Christ is pouring out of Stephen at the time where most people think it's the worst time. And it's not the worst time for the Christian. So they cry out with a loud voice, stop their ears, ran at him with one accord, cast him out of the city, stoned him, And the witnesses laid down their clothes (sighs) at the feet of a young man named Saul. And now you see why this chapter is written. (laughs) He's passing the baton here from Stephen to a guy named Saul, who later becomes Paul, who grows the church all around the ancient world. And it's by the work of the Holy Spirit, look at this, through a death, through persecution, Now, I don't know if God's ever going to call you to be a martyr in this way, but God calls every one of us to lay down our lives for other people. There's only growth and sweetness and the gospel going forth when we lay down our lives for other people. You can live for yourself or you can live for the Lord. And here we see it. So here you go at the feet of a young man, named Saul, who becomes Paul. In chapter 9, he gets saved. And they stone Stephen. Watch. Look at this prayer. It's almost too hard to believe. Can you imagine a stone crashing into your head? A boulder, a big hit thing, and boom, like a melon. And he's calling upon the Lord. He's praying. And what was he praying? Lord, help me out of this. Get me out of this. You promised that if I signed up with you, you would give me all these rosy things like cars and suits and watches and good book deals and CD deals and my Instagram would blow up. What are you doing? And he doesn't pray any of that. He just prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Into thy hands I commit thy spirit, the Lord said. Stephen is never more like the Lord himself. Than here in death. And he knelt down and cried out with a lord voice, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Can you hardly believe that? Well, that's what the Lord said. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And again, some people will use that for soul sleep. Here's the purpose of why he's saying to sleep sleep here. They're talking about death. He went went and died, but it was peaceful. Real peace comes when you die. And the next thing you know, you're in the arms of Jesus. This is powerful, folks. We look at this and we go, come on, we can't live like this. Well, yes, you can, because you have the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Do you know this in Revelation 2.10, Revelation 2.10, when the seven churches are receiving their messages, there's one church called Pergamos, and they are uh, asked to receive this message, or they they are given this message. Excuse excuse me. If you're faithful unto death, be faithful unto death, Jesus says, and I will give you the crown of life. Guess what? Guess what Stephen's name means? Crown. And... As we close here, and we move on out of here, the Lord Jesus came all this time ago, 2,000 plus years ago, in a little place called Bethlehem. He lived and grew up in Nazareth, and this was his first coming, his first advent. And the Lord doesn't want any of us to miss it, like they did here. Because Jesus Christ is coming in a second advent. He's coming again. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes a second time, he's going to do a special thing with the Jews. The Jews are going to recognize him. The ones that they pierce through, or the one that they pierce through. But we live in this time between the first coming and the second coming. It's the era of grace. He's coming back again a second time in judgment. And here's why I say that. The Lord doesn't want you to make the same mistake. In other words, when is a time that I should give my life to the Lord? The answer is today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. And as I pray here, you know, you you could bow your head and give your life to the Lord. And God will give you the peace and the strength to move through even death uh, situations that concern death with peace and grace and vision and hope. All in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this word. And thank you for the seriousness of it. And we ask, Lord, that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you in a real and saving way, they recognize they're a sinner who needs a Savior, you, your Son. We pray by the Holy Spirit, your tug on their heart, and they would come to know you and give their life to you by repenting and moving towards you, just agreeing with you about who they are and what they need, or who they need, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit would come in, and so I ask that if that's happening here, that those people would come after this message, and we would talk and pray together. Lord, we love you. We see what you can do with just a regular life. Oh, Lord, come fill us so that when we move out of here, you would have several appointments for us to share your love and light with a dying and hurting world. In Jesus' name we pray.